Welcome to the Close Knit Podcast, a podcast that showcases fiber artists from around the world. You're listening to episode 28, and this week I spoke to Emma Peters. Emma is a textile artist and lecturer based in Sydney. We chat about Emma's childhood and her strong tactile and olfactory memories of textiles as a child on the wool farm with her family. Emma has spent the last few years exploring wet felting and has incorporated this into her personal and professional work. We speak about how Emma has processed her life experiences through her work, sometimes unconsciously, and we discuss how powerful fiber as a medium can be. As a lecturer in a university setting, Emma brings her whole self to the classroom and is encouraging of her students to explore many elements of themselves in their work with fiber. We speak about the necessity of bringing and acknowledging the role of yourself in research and talk about the ways in which spaces displaying art can facilitate safe space for truth-telling about ourselves. Listen on for our whole chat. Thanks for tuning in. I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor for this week's episode, 100 Acts of Sewing. 100 Acts of Sewing is a pattern company making simple sewing patterns for a handmade wardrobe, designed by Sonia Phillip. The patterns are geared towards beginners with pieces that are easy to wear and modify. I have personally sewn the dress number two from 100 Acts of Sewing, and every time I see a new pattern by Sonia, I get so excited because of their ease of construction and versatility. Reading Sonia's instructions was like having a seasoned sewer in the room with me, walking me through the process step by step, something I feel is often missing from sewing patterns and online tutorials. If you're interested in handmaking your clothes and you aren't sure where to start, or even if you're a really good sewist, I can't recommend 100 Acts of Sewing Patterns highly enough. You can find 100 Acts of Sewing on Etsy. Just search 100, like the number, 100. 100 Acts of Sewing, and you can follow Sonia's Handmade Wardrobe Chronicles on Instagram at Sonia Philip, which is spelled S-O-N-Y-A-P-H-I-L-I-P. Thanks again to 100 Acts of Sewing for sponsoring this episode of the Close Knit Podcast. Hey, it's Ani of Close Knit, and I'm here with Emma Peters. Hey, Emma. Hi, Ani. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. My my show. I was like thinking, oh, thanks for like being here and coming onto the show. I was imagining us like sitting on a couch together with our little glasses of water. Wouldn't that be good? Let's oh, imagine. So good. <laughs> I wish one day when the podcast okay. is making millions of dollars <laughs> and I can have a recording studio. Oh, you'll fly people in. It'd be wonderful. That'd be amazing. <laughs> yes, please. Yes, please. Yes. Oh, and uh, I'm just going to jump straight into some questions, if that's all right with you. Mm-hmm. Great. What's your fiber of choice and what sort of like craft medium do you gravitate toward? Well, I would say wool is like my mother fiber. Wool and Australian wool has been um, in my blood for a long time. My grandparents had a farm and I remember going every summer and being in the shearing sheds and that smell of like lanolin and seeing it all happen um, was really like a formative memory. And then when I got to uni, um, they taught one class of felting. I'm like, what is this? This is amazing. It's just like um, the most beautiful technique. And I've spent many a year since then kind of looking at wool. But recently silk has come my way and I just Mm. – it's kind of like the opposite density of wool it's really I mean fleece can be really um ephemeral too but silk holds color in beautiful ways and they both bond beautifully together I was gonna ask if you use them together yeah Mm. they're really magical when they come together yeah Mm. you can kind of it's a laminating technique and um they work well 
Yeah. Um, when you say felting, is that like wet felting? Can you walk me through what that is? Yeah. Yeah. So there's two types of felting and you can do dry needlepoint felting and you can see really sweet kind of um, uh, tiny, beautiful, delicate things being made with needle felting. But I do wet felting and it's a bit more, uh, it's like a, it's kind of like baking uh, you, you're rolling, you're agitating, you've got soap, you've got the wool, you've got silk if you're using it and creating a fabric from raw materials. So going from, you know, you could start from wool off the sheep's back or, you know, alpaca or mohair or whatever you're using and then get to a point where you've made your own fabric, which I think is pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. So y- you can even, um, so you just have to forgive my ignorance here of the felting no, process. No, not at all. Um, you can even felt direct from a fleece, like a greasy fleece. Does it have to be clean? Yeah, it's best to clean it because yeah, okay. the lanolin and the dirt, I mean, that can be part of um, the fabric. Mm. I've felted wool straight from my family's farm and I didn't clean it very well. Or And, it, you know, you should probably um, card it too so all the fibres are lining up in one direction that does make for a better easier felting process yeah um but you don't have to you just get a kind of a raw slubby effect with all the grit and grime in it yeah, yeah. I'm asking because I've got all these bags of like fleece in my in my closet sitting mm. I'm literally sitting next to my closet right now and they're all just in there because I've like gone to various guilds in Tasmania and they've just been like, here's a bag of whatever fleece. And then there's this, <laughs> yeah, right. And then there's this, um, there's this group called Hobarter on Facebook, which is like a bartering group. And I would, I like put a few knitted things on there. And in return, I got some alpaca and some mohair or something. Oh. And then I went to the, um, gosh, what was it? It was sort of like a combination between an ag fest and, and like a, a really creepy old American style fair. And I can't remember what it was. It was one of those like Royal, Ho- oh, the Royal Hobart show. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes. It was yes. an experience. Most states have them. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I remember, I just went there. It was this rainy day and I was by myself and I was going to help the hand spinners guild booth there, just like hold down the fort. And it was just so bizarre like all these rickety old kind of like carousel ride things that look like some really terrifying person was just gonna like pop out of them and be like out of a movie. yeah yeah like out of a movie like here do you want some fairy floss <laughs> like... don't take the kids exactly leave them at home exactly um but all that is to say that I got they were like shear. They were having shearing demonstrations in one of the sheds, yeah. and they had just shorn this English Lester or bor- was it a Border Lester? It was some Lester, mm. and the fleece right off of the sheep's back was so clean. And I, it was he just he was mm. like here, just have this, and he just like gave me a handful. It was a big handful, a few hundred grams, yeah. and I just like stuffed, just kind of just held it inside my belly like a tiny baby. I was like, this is really weird, <laughs> um, but that's just in my so it's in my closet. And I've just been thinking because I'm something about spinning for me right now. I'm like, mm, I just don't really feel like spinning. Not I just want to do something with this fiber. And so the other day I was kind of going like, hmm, could I make a, um, could I like make my own doona? Like, could I, Ooh. how many steps would I need to take from my dirty ass fleas um, <laughs> to 
to like making it essentially into wadding for the inside of yeah. a doona. Is that a thing oh, you can do? <laughs> yeah, you can clean your own fleece. Yeah. You can, um, it's, you know, the trick is that wool, and this is why wool is great, is a great felter, is that when you have hot water near it, it will felt. Mm. Um, it'll, it's like putting a jumper in the dryer and it shrinks. Yeah. So that, so when you're cleaning it, you have to be really careful that when it's in hot soapy water, not to agitate it too much. Yeah. So the process is two buckets of hot soapy water and lifting it in and out really carefully okay um without doing too much to it yeah yeah because yeah, it mats up yeah um and then just pulling it apart with your hands like fairy floss yeah like that creepy guy at the front of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 okay okay yeah so so doable, YouTube. Yeah, that's what that's I was my thinking. My go-to for those things. I've literally got a few tabs up behind Skype right now that are like how to make a fleece, fleece like wool <laughs> fleece to doona to like to quilt. Um, and then are you when you card like are you do you have big like carders and you're doing it by hand or do you have a drum carder? Or what does that look like? Yeah, so um, because I'm connected to a university, I get to go ah. there equipment mm. and they do have a drum carter which it's a slow process yeah I've used the the comb so they're big kind of brushes with metal points yeah and you just kind of brush together yeah. to get the I must say though I haven't done a huge amount of my own carding mm. and I shortcut and you know <laughs> find suppliers that have already pre-carded there their work and I often actually buy um, pre-felted pieces of fleece. So some oh. suppliers will um, lay out the fleece and make sheets of it, and it's just like wadding really for a quilt. Yeah. So it's easier to to then apply silk or color or whatever before felting. Ah, so how did you come yeah. across these suppliers and stuff? It was just, you know, curiosity and talking to people. And there was one lady that um, was supplying the university I was at and she was, you know, an hour and a half out of Sydney. So I'd go visit her and ask her questions and then Google and knowing the terminology. So knowing that pre-felt is also called batting. Um, oh. Yeah, and that helps you with your searches and no, just connect, connecting to the community and just talking to people about what they do. I always thought batting was just the American word for wadding, for quilt wadding. Yeah, oh. but it can be another word for pre-felt. Well, it's not exactly a pre-felt. It's like sheets of fleece. So it's like a marshmallow blanket and it would come, um, you could pull it and it would all come apart quite easily. Yeah. But then if you felt that, it becomes like a really strong, consistent fabric. Mm. Yeah. Do you remember when the first time was that you put silk on wool together and just and did that? That is a good question. Oh, my goodness. I do remember because I had been doing some dyeing. So I'd finished uni and I'd started working in a commercial studio as a textile designer and I was really missing my practice and I thought, I'm just going to take a week down the south coast of New South Wales, rent a cheap little 
beach shack, take my dyed silks, take my wool and see what happens. And I'd heard... I'd heard about this thing called Nuno felting, um, which is where you lay silk on top of pre-felt and you felt it together. And because particularly really lightweight silk, when it's woven, you can see, you can see through it. So you can see little holes and what happens is the wool, as it gets agitated, the fibers um, creep up into these holes and then back down and it locks the silk into the, the wool base. And silk um, wool shrinks and then it also shrinks the silk. So it all becomes quite ripply and organic. And um, over the years, I've kind of perfected the technique. At first, I'd be like putting too much water on and the silk would go sliding off and everything would kind of um, not work. But that's kind of the beauty of making, seeing, exploring and dealing with imperfect kind of um, ideas but so yeah I was down in this beach shack doing these beautiful scarves with this purple dyed silk and I was like hey this really works it just so happened that the week before I'd met my husband for the first time oh. and um, the one week of beautiful artwork and creative time turned into this like really romantic week of not doing much work <laughs> so it was, it's all really tied up with ah oh, and you know um, skinny dipping and being out on the beach and it was winter so it was really wild and I have really beautiful memories of experimenting and going for walks and um, my, my my now husband visiting me and it was so good that's such a cool, cool question I hadn't thought about that for so long I, I love that question I had a feeling there might be, might be a story <laughs> to it there's always a story there is right and just I love asking that kind of getting people to think back to when it was that they like learnt to do something Ooh. because I think I sometimes find this with knitting where I'm at a point now where I I I never thought I'd get to this point but I kind of don't remember what it was like to be a beginner mm. I do I remember mm-hmm. I remember some frustration and I remember I remember things like that but I I think there's a lot of value in like going back to that sort of beginner's mind frame, right. particularly if you're, if you're like interacting with students and you're trying to teach other people how to do it, because it can be right. such a frustrating process for someone who's starting out with it, with something that's a little bit more rigid, like knitting, where it's sort of like, no, you kind of have to do it this specific way or it won't work. And then once you have this base level, then you can kind of muck around with it and do what you want. Um, so it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of interesting just thinking back to when that was and how, how that happened. I think that I, I was going to say, I think that being a teacher, you have to remember what it's like to be a student, to mm-hmm. be able to teach them mm-hmm. because you need to empathise with their position of not knowing mm-hmm. and you need to break it down for them and if that helps, I think, if you can remember yeah. that feeling. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And, the, and I think too, a lot of times I go into my knitting classes and I kind of go, by the way, everyone, I still make these mistakes like all the time. Mm-hmm. I have to rip out my work all the time. Mm-hmm. I muck up all the time. I make designs that don't work. I make designs I think work and then months later I hate them and I have to start over mm-hmm. again and keep going. It's like, it's like there is no point with this stuff where it's like, yep, I got all the things. I'm good. Figured it out. I just make work and I turn it out like crazy and it's beautiful and I love it every time. I love it 
20% of the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? And don't you think you always go through a period of time, it's the middle point where you're like, I hate this. Yeah. What is this? Yes. And it, I think that it's really important to convey that realness of making. It's not always joyful and, yeah. and you know, the sky doesn't open, the heavens don't open and deliver you a beautiful piece at the end. But I think that's good to know yeah. and to embrace yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. And like in the fact that you kind of don't have to like all of the parts of the process to do the thing. No. Do you, is there yeah. a part of felting that just ticks you off that you hate doing? Yes. And often I have to have really like I take big breaks between felting. Yeah. Um, particularly when doing large scale pieces. Yeah. I use a technique with a um, electric sander. So, mm. <laughs> yeah. It's, How does this get involved? Uh, so the sander, if you take the sandpaper off and you put bubble wrap on the sander, because the sander vibrates at a really high kind of rate, oh. you can place it on the felt. It will agitate the felt in a really controlled way, but it's really noisy and... Uh, it just, it's all the things I don't like about making. I like mm. slow and calm. I mean, I could make these pieces by hand. I really could. But sometimes when you're working up against the deadline, you have to fast track. Like, I'd love someone to, I think there are machines out there that can do um, felting for you, but I don't have access to one. So it's me and my sander with um, headphones on to cancel out the noise and my rubber shoes so I don't get fried. <gasps> you know. <laughs> Oh yeah, because it's wet. Yeah, the whole so I use wet. one that. Yeah, I try and use minimal water, and I use one that doesn't plug in, so it runs off batteries. But still, okay. you don't want to. Yeah. Have an That's accident. Do you? Not electrocute yourself. Yeah. <laughs> For your art. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm all about health and safety. So That's right. <laughs> there are parts. Yeah, there are definitely parts that yeah. are hard work. And it's mm. really, the big pieces are really physical. Mm. So I'm exhausted by the end mm. of the day. And that is why I don't make too many large pieces. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really valid, I think. And um, I, I also think, I was thinking about this with, I go to this dance thing called No Lights, No Lycra. Oh, yes. Yeah. I've heard ha- have of Have you this? been to yeah. that? I haven't been, but my friends go in Sydney and they love it. Yes, I love it too. But sometimes, like, so you go, it's like lights are all off for an hour, you dance in the dark. And the whole idea is there's no, you know, no lights, no lycra. There's no right way to dress and there's no right way to dance. No one's looking, just dance and let yourself loose for an hour. And I was trying to explain it to other people who were were thinking about coming along, but they were sort of like, oh, I don't know, what if the playlist is bad? Da, da, da. And I was like, yeah, that's fair. And there are definitely times where I'm not resonating with the music that's playing, or I don't know how to dance to it, or I'm not enjoying it. But there's this part of me that like really feels like that's important for me mm-hmm. to just like stand there and be uncomfortable and be mm-hmm. like, I don't know how this, I don't really like how this feels. Or I just, I okay, I have to stretch for five minutes because uh, there's nowhere to go. Like I can't yeah. leave. I could leave. Yeah. I'm allowed to leave. You know what I mean? Like it's not like I'm locked in there, yeah. but there's, it's like important to me to do that part of it because I don't like it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? To like work I, through it. Yeah. yeah. And, and it like really, sometimes it really forces me to like sit with some stuff that I didn't want to sit with. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that space that's opened up where you're suddenly confronted 
with nothing else but yourself. <laughs> you need to get through it. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, gosh. <laughs> it's such a skill. I'm trying to teach my little ones how to be bored and how to wait. And they just, I'm like, let's think of all the things we can do while we're waiting. Oh, it's hard for them. Yeah. They, they get into it after a while. Yeah. But, but it's like I have to teach myself. I'm teaching myself while I'm teaching them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because yeah. we don't have a lot of time in our day-to-day lives that's, like, empty. <laughs> it's so foreign, foreign to us. Mm-hmm. And if we do have empty time, there's always the phone and Instagram. And Oh, yes. It's, I'm trying really hard to wait in queues in the waiting room. I mean, knitting helps with this. I always have mm-hmm. a little project with me. Yeah. And not look at my phone because it just cuts you off from what's happening in the world. Yeah. And there's no eye contact. And yeah, yeah. I know. It's important. I know. I was sitting at waiting for a friend at breakfast this morning and I didn't bring my knitting because I was like, okay, I, I almost always bring my knitting. <laughs> Even if I'm leaving the house for like what I think will be half an hour, I bring my knitting. Yeah. Because I am that, uh, I have that much anxiety. <laughs> yeah. About I'm waiting. With my hands. Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't this morning because I was like oh I'm going to be out for an hour I have to go back home anyway I'll do my knitting later and I sat you know I was there with my phone and was just kind of like don't touch the phone don't touch the phone just sit here just sit here and I just sat there thinking like I really wish I had my knitting right now I just want to do a couple of rows such a security blanket like it literally truly is. It truly, yeah. <laughs> exactly but it really really is it so is do you have you found with your kids um are you teaching them make are they making stuff with their hands is that something you guys do together yeah they're still quite little so Mm. charlie's three and a half and violet's 17 months and charlie's is getting to that age of um making and he i just follow his lead like there's stuff in the house that he can use but i i really am reticent to direct him and i think it's such a special time where he doesn't feel the pressure to perform or, mm-hmm. um, and he was oh, it's so cute. He's, his big thing at the moment is drawing maps so he can find dinosaur bones and they're really intricate. Yeah. And he's just come up with this all by himself. No one's shown him that you can draw a map. Um, so interesting. Yeah. So I'm just letting it unfold. I mean, part of me is like, I can't wait to do all the craft with them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yes. But um, it's yet to come. And they may not ever really be interested. I don't know. Mm. They'll be seeing me do it. Yeah. (laughs) And it's that funny thing of like they see you do it, therefore they love it. Or is it one of those things like mom does it, so therefore I hate it. Yeah. (laughs) It's just the thing that mom does. She's ignoring me and she's sitting and doing her thing and that's really annoying. So that thing is annoying. (laughs) Yeah. That thing that's taking her attention away from me, I dislike very much. Yeah, yeah I rarely sit down and get a row done when the kids are around at the moment. But yeah, hopefully yeah. they're all going to be like, well, both of them will love sport. I can't wait for Saturday morning sport so I can there sit on the go. edge and knit. It'll happen. So when you were a kid, so you were talking about being on the farm and like seeing all the shearing and mm-hmm. the lanolin and all of that stuff and remembering all of these, having all these memories. Mm. Um, a couple of questions have come up for me. One is, where was all that going? And the second is, like the fleece. And then the second is, did you make stuff with it when you were a kid? Like, did somebody mm. teach you how to 
craft, how to knit, whatever? Um, the, so no and no, like, I don't know where the wool went. I have yeah. no idea. And actually yeah. the farm still exists. It's run by my um, uncle and cousins um, and they have reduced their wool. Um, they're mostly like a crop farm, if that makes sense, like they, they harvest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, back in the day, I don't know where I went and it probably went offshore mm-hmm. uh, because most of Australian wool does to get processed. Yeah. I don't know of any... I'm sure there are people scouring their wool here and processing it, but I'm not mm. sure of where that is. Yeah. Um, which is just, I find, ridiculous where yeah. we have beautiful quality wool and it's there's nowhere to – you can't keep it here to get it ready for fashion or wherever it's going. So yeah. I don't know where it went. And I remember just figuring out a lot of things myself when I was a kid. My mm. grandma was – decidedly non-makery I think she felt it was anti-feminist to make yeah 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 um my mom kind of would have a craft going on like she had a big puffy paint um themed two months and then she was really into pottery and then she was into Mm. like she was a chopper and changer which actually gave me a taste for heaps of different skills Um, but I do remember just working it out and I think that's what I liked about it that you can just kind of go oh how about I try and fix this or maybe I could make that and Mm. um, that kind of occurred all through my childhood my grand taught me how to patchwork um, oh cool yeah yeah but Mm. on a very rudimentary kind of scale but yeah yeah so it was there in the background but it wasn't ever a big theme so I think in saying that, I went to a Montessori preschool and they yeah. introduce learning through experience and that that is how I learn, like I have to do and to mm. explore and make it up as I go along to um, to learn a technique or anything really. Yeah, yeah, hmm. yeah. So did they, did you, do you have a memory of someone teaching you to knit specifically or? I think my mum did. Yeah. And I remember that she would always have to cast on and cast off for me. Yeah. And <laughs> that's the hardest part. <laughs> it's, a, it's a common experience, I find, yeah. talking to people. I think because the middle part you're doing over and over again, you get into a rhythm and you learn that, like it becomes a body, a bodily kind of memory. Mm-hmm. But you're only casting on and casting off once. So. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that's it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and I was always through high school making little things like I had a, a friendship, this is hilarious, a friendship bracelet business. Yes. Which <laughs> I love these stories. A little bit of an oxymoron there because people are paying me for these friendship bracelets. <laughs> but they were really, like, um, I wish I had one still. They were raffia and they had beads through them and cool. they were beautiful. Mm. I was impressed with myself then. Yeah, <laughs> I love that you're like monetizing it. You're like, so oh, everyone, yeah. <laughs> you'll have your little bum bag with your change in the, in the thing, right? Yeah, in the playground doing a deal. Yeah. What's that with about? <laughs> with my raffia friendship bracelets. Oh, that's so good. And then, like, how, um, so then you went on to study textiles and stuff, yes? Yeah, well, I went to uni, um. Yeah and enrolled in a design degree with the thought that I'd become a graphic designer because I was always creative and I wanted a job 
So I thought, yeah. well, graphic design is the place to be. And yeah. then realized I'd chosen some really bad, what, well, just subjects that didn't suit me. So mm. in third year, I begged the textile coordinator to let me in to her class so I could yeah. drop this other really boring subject and um, never did second year textiles and then majored for my fourth year in textiles, did an honours, um, six months of honours. And that first class of textiles, I was like, this is the place I need to be. This is where you get to chat, you get to make, mm. it's all very calm and slow and it just suited my what I wanted at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, what is this world? I didn't really know that you could get a job in textiles. Mm. I had no idea what it was all about. Yeah. I didn't study it in high school, so I wasn't sure of the potential, but it felt really good to me once I'd arrived. Yeah. yeah. Was it even offered at high school level for you? I think there was a subject called design and technology, but mm. it didn't really – I did art, but I, I – wasn't all that keen on design technology. I don't know why. Didn't appeal yeah. to me. Yeah. No, I was going to say now it's different. Like the schooling yeah. system has high school leavers come out with amazing textile skills if they've taken that subject. Yeah, okay. That's yeah. cool. I'm glad yeah. to see that changing as well. Yeah. Because I think mm-hmm. I was thinking when you said it didn't interest you, I think I had a similar experience of like um, – I guess we could only choose a couple of electives. And for me, it was always music. It was like, oh, I always have choir. And that's my like one elective that I get to choose. And then they had like a fashion design class. And I remember like we'd have our VAPA, which was visual and performing arts, the acronym for it, like showcase. And we would, mm-hmm. I would always like, you know, be in my choir singing. And then I would get to see all of the fashion design students and they were out modeling all their stuff. And I was like, oh, I really want to do that. But then there was this part of me inside too that was like, uh, but that's like not feminist. Like that's Ooh. you know that's too girly. Like to sew and to da da da. It was like oh no, I'm a runner and like I you know I'm really strong and I hang out with boys and I'm really tough. Like yeah, <laughs> yeah. It didn't resonate with you. Mm. And I mean, I was fortunate in that my degree, the textile degree, had no fashion in it. Mm. Which it was all conceptual. It was all art based. There was some yeah. design. I mean, it was a design degree. Um, but it was mostly just thinking about how textiles could express ideas and mm. exploring the mediums. It was pretty open. Yeah. So I didn't, yeah, I, I think if it was a fashion degree, I wouldn't have been interested either. Yeah, yeah, because that's yeah. rigid kind of. It's like designing yeah. for, a, for a form, for a body. Yeah, yeah. pattern making. Yeah. Funny because people ask me, you know, do you make your own clothes? I'm like, I'd love to make my own clothes, but I don't know how to pattern make. I don't, I I know how to sew, but I, I mean, that was one of my goals for this year to learn how to make clothes. It will happen maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Just keep it on the back burner. Add it to the list. Exactly. Far out. That happens to me every day. I'm like, just add that to the list. The like never ending list of things I might eventually possibly do. Yeah. Was that degree in Sydney? Were you doing that in Sydney? Oh, yeah. So it was a UNSW degree at their art campus, which is now called Art and Design. And I, in fact, teach into the undergrad course now. Hilarious. I teach the second year textile students, the design students, which is the year I never did at uni myself. Yeah. So I feel like I've done it maybe 10 times now because 
I've been teaching it for about 10 years. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Yeah. I kind of love too yeah. that like you didn't have the experience of it as an undergrad and you could just go yeah. in with like, look, this is my experience of all the other stuff and I'm going to yeah. make this second year kind of with your own spin on it. Yeah, I feel like I always, I've, I, I think, um, I mean, I really liked uni, but I didn't feel like I got the most out of it. And I'm, I think I went back to teach to ensure that, I don't know, that I, I had a really good experience of uni mm-hmm. and it's great teaching um, university students. I love it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. They want to be there, I would imagine. They want to be there. Mm-hmm. They have passion and they I mean, I learn so much from them. They keep me connected to what's going on. Um, And it's really lovely seeing them opening to new ideas and going deeper into their practice. And Mm. yeah. How does your role as a teacher impact your role as a maker, artist? Like, you know, how do you, I, I guess I was wondering about how those lines get blurred and them teaching you and you teaching them. And, you know, when we, when we met at the um, showcase in Sydney and you were talking about how your work is actually really indicative of you processing grief and processing some really kind of personal heavy things. Mm -hmm. Is that something you feel like you can bring into your teacher identity? Like how does that all kind of mesh together? Yeah, oh, it's all blurred. Mm. And I think all the jobs I've done over the years, the theme has been um, nurturing and textiles-based. And I found all these different ways to do those jobs. Um, And I am a very, I think some of my students think I'm a little too honest. I really like to show them that textiles can be part of your life in so many different ways Mm. you can find your place within textiles it's such an expansive land you can you know work in a fast-paced fashion industry job or you could slow it right back down and consider all that you know beautiful slow stitching or natural dye or um and yeah so they every class I come out thinking How incredible that I have 30 students in this class all making their way through their degrees in different ways and bringing their backgrounds to it and um, and their experiences and their stories. And it just makes me feel that that's something really special about textiles, that we can all find a place in it if we want to. Yeah. It's really, um, what's the word? Like it's so inclusive Mm -hmm. and it's intergenerational and cross-cultural. It's incredible. Makes me feel like I'm actually tingling thinking about the possibilities. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I really, you saying that just literally those exact words of intergenerational, like multi-ethnic, cross-cultural, inclusive, this whole, every time I teach, every time I'm in a group of people who do something related to textiles like every time I think about the possibility of how it connects people same thing I literally like goosebumps just tingly it's so powerful yeah yeah absolutely I see I mean textiles in some cultures have been really female based but Mm. I see guys really embrace textiles too and get a lot out of it and I mean predominantly my classes are all female but when I get a guy student I'm just I try not to pick them out and but I just love watching their process and how they work through briefs and what they bring to their their work 
Beautiful. Have you seen that class dynamic change over time? Like, have there been more men over time? Or is it... Yeah, it's on and off. It differs. Like, you just can't guess who you're going to get in your class. And, um, yeah, it's funny because, I mean, in fashion, a lot of the top fashion designers are male. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so... I guess the the degree I teach, we it's not a focus on fashion, so it's a little yeah. bit different. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just every year's different. I love the first day. I'm like a real nerd. I'm like, I'll get my pencils and my journal and my class list. So cute. <laughs> They're probably like, who is this crazy one? <laughs> They're all like, oh my god, summer's over, and now we have to tackle this degree. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, that's ex- it's exciting though getting that fresh perspective yeah. in every year as well. Yeah, Do you, and you have the whole the same students just for the whole year. Yeah, for okay. the semester. Oh, for okay. the semester, I stay with the same students. So by the end, yeah. we get to know each other really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, I just I hear from some of my um, graduates who have made it through the degree and are you know working in Berlin or the UK, and I just I'm so happy for them that they've forged a career in textiles because it's a tiny industry. And even if it's not a career and they're just, um, they're keeping it in the background for therapy purposes, (laughs) sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, just as um, an outlet for themselves creatively is really joyful for me. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that because I was, um, yeah, curious about the career element and the, ability to make a living off of textiles is your kind of um is lecturing your bread and butter is that how you make a living yeah at the yeah. moment mm-hmm. lecturing is a great way for me to um generate money because my practice at the moment doesn't because it's yeah. so personal my practice and so conceptual and pretty new like mm. it only was really established across the last four years and I was having kids at the same time. So um, lecturing is a really lovely way to bring my interest to the students and um, get paid for it. And it's quite flexible. So, you know, it's not like one of those full-time jobs where you have to be at your desk all day. Like I'll teach for three hours. I'll hang around and have a chat and then off I go into the next thing. Yeah. But in, in the past, I've worked full-time in studios as a textile designer and I yeah. did that for homewares for, you know, 10 years and that was a fabulous way to be creative every day. Um, I was painting and drawing and being, you know, as experimental as you can be when you're designing for the mass market um, and getting paid for it. And it was a beautiful studio. I wanted to ask, because you mentioned that you were starting with this practice of making as you were having children. And I wondered whether there was like, whether what that dynamic was like of like, was that sort of reactionary? Was, did one, did you notice one come before the other or do you know what I mean? That kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. So the logistics of it was I started a master's um, and I had one year full time while pregnant and it was the best year. I wasn't, I was teaching, um, but I wasn't working in full time. And it was so immersive. I just got right into my 
topics and um oh, I just remember you know walking around Sydney collecting figs from Moreton Bay trees and I was like super pregnant and people would be like what are you doing you're gonna cook those figs I'm like no <laughs> they're for my dye pot and then we'd have this great conversation and I just had so much time and then my little boy arrived and it just had to kind of go on hold but I was quickly not quickly but I just integrated my making practice in with him um you don't want to say this too loudly but my kids were quite good sleepers and I was really fortunate yeah (laughs) I mean not perfect but they give me two or three hours a day that's more than most people get when they have newborns um and then so I was between my son and my daughter I had two and a half years and I was making these large-scale quilt Mm. pieces and I was sewing felt balls into them and they had kind of undulating um I don't know what you'd anyway I'll have to send you a link so you can Mm. see the picture but um I took it into uni one day and one of my colleagues said oh thousands of nipples I'm like huh yeah I just designed a quilt with a thousand nipples on it which was so indicative of where my headspace was at that time because breastfeeding for me had been a huge Mm. struggle. I was really looking forward to breastfeeding and it just turned out that I had low supply and my little boy just wasn't a really, like he was not a ferocious kind of sucker. (laughs) We were not a great match and it was really, it was really hard to process and I didn't even know it was coming out in my art. But mm-hmm. there it was for this colleague to tell me all about it. I'm like, oh, that's so yeah. funny how it's subconscious on a subconscious level. It was all I was mm-hmm. thinking about back then. And it's a real, that quilt is a real record of that time for me. I look at it and I just remember being a new mum and uh, the, <laughs> you just turned upside mm. down. And then you slowly rediscover that you're the same yeah. person. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> I imagine that being a very, I mean, traumatic. I don't know if that's the right word, but traumatic yeah. sounds like it, can it kind be. of it sounds like it kind of is. Oh, it is. And you're alone, you know, you're not always alone. And you've got little mm. communities, but from you know, late at yeah. night at 3 a.m pumping on a milk machine mm. is not that fun mm. and thank goodness for knitting because you can knit and pump good life advice time. yeah <laughs> as it turns Very out good life advice yes. <laughs> don't get too tangled there's a lot of cords going on but <laughs> I mean I look back on it and I think that was really hard but I'm really glad I got to process it through my making it was a really beautiful mm. outlet for me just to work things out for myself and to be okay with it and just to go it's okay it's it wasn't perfect but yeah. I'm doing the yeah. best I can and that's how that all yeah. that work kind of is hey it's like it's never going to be perfect this is all made by an imperfect being <laughs> yeah. We're, yeah we're not machines and that is the beauty of mm. handmade pieces the mistakes mm. and the the holes and um, and all the mm-hmm. stories that go along I, um, with it. Was, yeah. I went to this little retreat in the Dandenongs um, last year and Charlie McCaffrey, who's um, a 
I can never pronounce her thing right, but she's she's Navajo. And uh, her, uh, I hope I hope, hope that's the right one. I'm pretty sure she's Navajo. Um, in her ancestry, and she was talking about she brought all these. She taught Navajo spindling, and she also brought all of these um, woven rugs from like her grandmother and all of her extended oh. family. And she talked about how all the stories that were in the rugs, like literally kind of depicted in the rugs, but the stories behind them and Ooh. also that they always, it would be all perfect, all perfect, all perfect. And they would purposely every single time on every single piece make a mistake. And it was like, it was just it, without fail. And that was just, uh, that was part of how they taught their process. Uh. That was part of how they, you learned it when you were a kid. You were sitting and your grandmother would teach you and she would show you and she would purposely make the mistake as a nod to like, Ooh. it's never going to be perfect ever. And I just remember feeling this real big, this like sense of relief of just like, oh, oh. Okay, like that was a thing back yes. then that permission. people, yeah, permission, yeah. permission to like yeah. it's okay that it's not perfect and that you're gonna fuck up all the time and like yes. have to keep it's part trying. of the experience. Mm. Yes, I love that. Yeah, ah, I'm gonna share that with my students because mm. it's. I think we're so um, schooled in being perfect and getting it right and being the best. Yeah. It's not possible all the time. Yeah. And getting it right on the first time, which is, I think, why so many people give up on trying new things as an adult. Like, I've just been trying to, like, play the ukulele a little bit. And I'm like, sometimes I get so grumpy with myself because I'm like, I can't do it. (laughs) It doesn't sound right. (laughs) Yeah. But it's like, why am I so attached to it being right on the first time? Yeah. Yeah. I think I've learned. I've learned that through textiles yeah. that you, oh, it doesn't need to be put. It, there's beauty in that imperfection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was there ever a process that, or like a an outcome that happened from you making a mistake that you've ended up like using as a technique? <laughs> if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's one example of, uh, I don't know if this is, okay, so I'm just going to tell you it. Yeah. It's a funny story. Yeah. Well, I think it's a funny story. So um, my, <laughs> my thesis was about memory um, and I distinctly and for years believed that I started sewing or kind of was introduced to making um, because my hem fell down on my school uniform and a quick fix was to staple it up and I just invented this technique. And then sitting through school assembly in summer with these staples biting to the back of my legs going, this is not a good <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is not a good technique. I'm going to have to learn how to sew my hem up and going off and learning how to do that. Mm. And then a couple of years ago, I was telling my, my mum, oh, this story of my formative kind of understanding of making and how empowering it can be is this and, you know, remember when I stapled up and she's like, no, no, you never stapled up your hem. That was a story that she used to tell me of something she did in boarding school and somehow I'd adopted the memory and turned it in. But it was funny because I can feel those staples in the back of my legs. Like it's a really strong memory, yet I had adopted my mum's story and made it into my own and I just, that, inaccuracy the flawed nature of memory I was just really interested in whether in whether that matters 
and whether we can just embrace like I have a terrible memory and I'm like it must not all be bad so um so I started working with staples into silk and realized that they were a really beautiful way to make patterns so I was stapling like I'd stitch and for hours I'd just be like clunk 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 and drive my family crazy and then I realized well metal rusts and rust can create a color on fabric so wrapped it up and um in a corrosive process unrolled it and it was this beautiful silk piece dyed with the rust with the staples in I'm like huh this is interesting it's just so cool when you don't know what is gonna happen and it all comes out of this kind of flawed mistake that you made years ago um in this memory that was corrected but yeah I've chosen to embrace it so yeah yeah Yeah. so I'm working on some stuff to do with that technique Mm. for an exhibition coming up and Mm. yeah yeah it's exciting yeah that's so it's that's so interesting just (laughs) memory just like you going no that definitely happened and I can feel it I had such conviction and it was I mean how many memories do we have that we base ourselves identity on that was me and that's how I experienced it and how many of those memories are completely inaccurate yeah (laughs) and does it matter yeah it doesn't matter I know in the end I think if I got too attached to trying to figure out whether my memories were real I would just lose it yeah (laughs) I would totally lose it and you know maybe it was real maybe Mm. I did staple up my hem because my mum had told that story yeah and that's you you remember that and maybe it was just for that one day yeah. and you were like ow my legs hurt I took I yeah. took the stables out before I got home Mom it never might be noticed. true yeah yeah it might be true yeah yeah mysterious yeah <laughs> I love that I love how that's like informed your work in that way yeah. as well I mean who would have thought you could do a research thesis on this tiny little memory one little memory and then yeah. explode it out into academic writing yeah well you can yeah <laughs> God. it's mm. yeah but that's just how it goes hey like start with a tiny tiny thought and then it kind of like yeah, yeah. grows and grows mm. and I think um people ha- make the mistake that academic work is impersonal mm. but I think it always starts from a personal place it always starts with a question yeah. about the world that you've come up with yeah. and then you go from there yeah. I think that's where academics get themselves into trouble a lot actually is particularly scientists I found this I studied environmental science at Berkeley and there was a lot of this kind of idea of objectivity and whilst I was taking a a lot of like hard sciences of like organic chemistry and biology and things that required you to you know they had formulas and there's no real personality in formulas for the most part but I was also taking social science classes where we were talking a ton about situational knowledge and the fact that every question we ask and everything we do comes from our situation of whatever Mm -hmm. we are like the context with with it within which we exist and it's Mm -hmm. like it seems so obvious it's like duh you know Mm -hmm. like of course the questions that I ask are formed by the color of my skin where I grew up the parents I had yada yada but we still treat certain questions, particularly in science and other fields, as if that's not the case, as if they exist in a vacuum. It's like nothing does. Nothing exists in a vacuum. No. And it's problematic to 
operate under that assumption because that like that's where academia becomes the like ivory tower from which nobody no change is ever made do you know what I mean yeah because people can't relate to it yeah people aren't relating to things that are not attached to human experience and it's impossible as a creative person as a researcher in anything you do to take yourself out of the equation and disconnect yourself because you're always going to bring your history your thoughts your experiences with you and it's dangerous to think that you can you can't Mm. um but I think fortunately in the creative art space of research they acknowledge that Mm. and they know that the artist is part of the outcome Mm -hmm. and I mean you write about that you say how you have affected the research Mm. and how you're connected to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a murky, foggy world. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's actually really quite unfortunate that scientists try to do this whole writing from objectivity because it's, yeah, it's claiming something that you cannot do, which is to actually remove yourself from the process. Mm -hmm. But it's also denying that there's a really creative and artistic approach. Like the scientific method Mm -hmm. is art in itself. Oh, I totally agree. And it really bothers me that we have this whole idea of like, I am a quote creative person or I am not a creative person. It's like creativity is in everything, particularly in science, because how you craft the question, how you go about creating the experimental apparatus Mm. through which you do the research, like it's all there. It's all creative. There are so many parallels Mm. in, I mean, I'm not a scientist, but I believe that the parallels of process of creative people and scientists are so similar you come up with the question you do some experimenting you might not resolve it I mean Mm -hmm. it happens in both situations yeah Yeah, exactly there's no resolution (laughs) no yeah and then you can come back to that try to replicate it and then like somebody else can ask a new question that's based off that question and yeah yeah Mm, new podcast topic (laughs) (laughs) the union of science i know so many i know so many textile people that have had a science background it's a really common thing Mm. and i think um oh this is actually totally it's slightly unrelated but i i need to i need to say it now so i don't forget it because maybe i can come back to this and do it in the future i think your whole experiment with rust corrosion in textiles I think there's a really powerful teaching tool here for children to incorporate Mm. like natural dyes and um, other elements of fiber in teaching about science, Mm. like the process of corrosion, but also the teaching of feminism and women's history, craft history. Mm. I've been thinking a lot about like, how do I exist in a space where I can make money off of the thing I want to do? but also be in like a teaching role, but also be teaching da 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 And I was just thinking Ooh. about all the ways in which like, you know, fiber is science, fiber is environment, fiber is um, feminism, fiber is history, it's fiber is social justice, fiber is social justice movements and like how potent of a teaching tool, not only for like university age, but like little kids, like showing Mm -hmm. them, like you had that experience of being on your family farm. Like you have the experience of smelling the lanolin. So you remember what that's like. And you would remember all of these things, these really visceral kind of, and um, 
tactile experiences that helped you remember mm. those things and have shaped so much of you in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so good. I mean, I really believe that fiber is, it's so accessible. Mm. I mean, we wear clothes. Mm-hmm. It's part of our, we're born into cloth. I think I've heard that quote. I'm not sure yeah, who it's okay. from. Yeah. We, we die, we, you know, we pass away and we're wrapped. It's part of our lives throughout and people understand it mm. on a, you know, on basic levels, but it's a metaphor for so many things. Mm. Um, and learning from that is, yeah, it could be very exciting. Mm. I know I continually uh, think about the indigo dye vat as like such a life mm. metaphor. It sounds kind of mm. tacky, but it's like, you know, put the stuff in, swirl it all around a whole bunch, <laughs> like just muck it right up. You have no idea what's happening in there. Take it out and not knowing what it's going to actually look like. Oh, it's green right now, actually, until it touches the air. Add in some other elements, you know, O2, (laughs) whatever, oxygen, (laughs) to, like, change it entirely and then see what you do with the outcome. See how you, like, whether you like the color, the darkness, how it fades over time, like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, adjust and look at those changes, embrace the changes and... The possibility and oh gosh it's life isn't it mm. we are all just little indigo bags <laughs> <laughs> i'm ready i'm ready to come out of the indigo bat now yeah maybe the earth is just one giant indigo bat and we're all just like floating oh, yeah. around in it oh i like b- that. bumping up against each other <laughs> little smurfs with our blue skin yes <laughs> Little Smurfs. That's all we really are. Just a bunch of little Smurfs. Oh, funny. Oh, I love it. Mm. Was there anything else that you wanted to chat about? Did you have any thoughts? Oh. I, I don't know. I think this, this has been such a beautiful conversation. I've loved where it's... Oh, we've touched on many things yeah. unexpectedly. Yeah. So thanks for doing so that. So good. I love these kind of chats. Yeah, thanks for letting it go that way. It's kind of... um. Sometimes the conversations are more structured and sometimes I throw the little question book out the window and just Ooh. kind of just start asking. Roll with it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and I just think no, your whole like... Beautiful. Your experience of it all of memory and your childhood and how that played out in your work with your own children, with your adult life, like presently, it's like, it's all, there's a lot there, I think. And there's obviously, this is just scratching the surface of it all. There's so much more to kind of unpack. And, and like we talked, we were talking about before we started recording, just like, just how potent it is to hold space for the conversation like it's so Mm -hmm. nice to have it over the podcast but when we were at the seeds seed stitch exhibition it was a room full of women just exhibiting their art and their pieces and talking just ah having this heart space you know this um uh parker palmer who is a social justice activist said something on the podcast called on being with Krista Tippett he said I I think um one one thing that society is deficient in is safe spaces for the for truth telling about the conditions of our souls condition of our souls and um that I think I even said that on that day because I just sort of felt I feel this real deficit of that in the world of feeling like you can really show up in a in a in a space of um prolific social media look at my life my life is so perfect Mm. I never feel sadness I never feel anything but 
you know, perfection to be able to hold that space and have those people and have people turn up to the space and not shy away from it and not Mm -hmm. be afraid to share and not be shaming of each other. I just, I still get goosebumps thinking about it. Oh yeah. That conversation, it was such a safe space. Mm. And I think people really felt um, so happy and open to share their stories through their textile with each other. Mm. It was so powerful Mm. and it doesn't, get it doesn't get going very often to enter into that space takes I don't know some really unique ingredients and um I think textiles can do that it can start the conversation it's like I just think about show and tell at school like this is my expression of what's going on and now I feel safe to talk about it yeah 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 far out show and tell was so it felt safe, didn't it, when you were a kid? Mm-hmm. Just kind of, this is my thing that I want to talk about and everyone is, like, going to sit politely and then they'll, like, clap afterwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was no judgment. Yeah. There was no, um, well, they, well, not that I knew of. Uh, yeah. Well, it was just even though kids can be sometimes the most brutally honest and, like, least, you know, they have the least filter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but everybody knew that that was their role, was to listen and to be like, cool, I support the thing that you brought in today because it's important mm. to you. Wow. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, about the way that we kind of, like, we run out of those spaces in our adult life. Yeah. We don't have spaces yeah. like that, really. Yeah. And I think the online space has the capacity for that, but I think people forget that it's not a place. It doesn't need to be a place of pointing the finger and asserting oneself on top of another. Yeah. It can be such a supportive place. Yeah. Yeah. It just needs everyone to agree to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and usually people, I feel like in the fiber arts community, people kind of do. There's this unspoken yeah. like, we just lift each other up because yeah. that's just what we do. Yeah. But yeah, not always. And I think too that that's wonderful and keeps a lot of people going, myself included, to like keep working, keep keep doing yeah. the work. But um, but that the actual physical space of it, of getting to sit down with somebody or be in that space, like that gallery space that we are in or a cafe or something where you can be like, hey, this is what I'm doing and have everyone be yeah. like, nice one. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Okay, well. Where are those spaces? To-do list. We need to find more of them. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I've got this never-ending to-do list of things. That <laughs> well, as cheerleader, um, I think you're the person. <laughs> yeah. I know. Hold me accountable. It's a big responsibility. It is. It's, it's a big burden to bear. <laughs> no, it's so fantastic. But I'll, yeah. um, I'll have to have you keep me accountable to that. I would like to. I would like to make more spaces for that to happen. Yeah, I'm going to think more about it. Mm. Yeah, mm. awesome. Thank you so much for chatting. Thanks, Arnie. It was beautiful. <laughs> yeah, so, so good to talk to you. Yeah, great to talk to you. <laughs> You've just listened to episode 28 of the Close Knit Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please share us with your friends and leave us a rating and a review on iTunes to help us reach more people in the fiber arts community. Thanks so much for tuning in. Till next time.